Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Venora Bennett, and today we're discussing China's Belt and Road Initiative, arguably its most ambitious economic and foreign policy project since the founding of the People's Republic. With me is Mattia Romani, the EBRD's Managing Director for Economics, Policy and Governance, an expert on what is also known as One Belt, One Road. The project of the century was how China's President Xi Jinping described his country's Belt and Road Initiative earlier in the year. But how do we actually define Belt and Road? China's Belt and Road Initiative is a major development strategy launched by China's President Xi Jinping. He's resurrected the concept of the Silk Road, established during the Han Dynasty 2000 years ago. The new Silk Road will revitalize roads, rails, and maritime routes, connecting China with Asia, Africa, and Europe. The Belt and Road Initiative hopes to boost trade, economic growth, and establish new bonds between people. So is that a good summary, Matthias? Why Belt and Road? And where did this idea come from? It's a very good question. Where does the idea come from? Well, we have to go back in history. It's really the Han Dynasty time when China was connected uh, to Europe through the Silk Road, which is a physical bit of infrastructure. It was a road that would connect China to Europe and move goods such as precious silk, probably at the time the most precious of commodities. Before I joined EBRD, I worked for McKinsey and one of the things we did is look for the center of the world. Where has the center of the world been through the centuries? And if you look at most of the history of humanity, the center of the world was bang in the middle of the Silk Road in the middle of Central Asia. It has then moved west. It's probably moving back east somehow and that's uh, the beginning of the new Silk Road story. But actually, the Belt and Road Initiative is a, is a much wider uh, concept. It's a concept of connectivity, of connecting again China and Europe through Central Asia in a much deeper, deeper way. It's a very ambitious, very ambitious plan. It seems hugely ambitious. Um, how big are its scope and scale? So um, if we look at uh, what the, the sort of whole initiative includes, the scope is indeed uh, bewildering. It's, a, it, it, it's a incredible. It is meant to cover uh, more than 60 emerging markets. Over half of the global population would be part of, uh, would be touched by the Belt, uh, Belt and Road. More than a third of the global GDP uh, would be touched by the Belt and Road. So the size is really astonishingly big, particularly because the geographical dimension of the Belt and Road Initiative have not been defined very clearly. Just to give you a sense, when we met uh, with uh, one of the key institutions uh, recently, the Silk Road Fund, and asked its president, what are the geographical dimensions of the Belt and Road Initiative? His answer was, uh, well, where I am, there is the Silk Road. Uh, somehow the geography is still to be defined precisely. So according to the global consultancy McKinsey, where you used to work, uh, this plan has the potential to massively overshadow the US's post-war Marshall Plan in Europe. Would you say that's a fair comparison? I think it's a comparison that holds when it comes to the level of ambition. 
I think it's similar. But there are, of course, uh, big differences between the Marshall Plan, which was, you know, America's post-war reconstruction effort that had links indeed to uh, the, the war and the reconstruction after the war and the military and strategic links that America wanted to build with Europe. And the Belt and Road Initiative that doesn't have sort of the same, if you want, uh, military, military strategic components to it. It's really very much an economic plan. And it's also, and that's another key difference, it's a plan that doesn't entirely depend on China. Uh, China made it very clear that while um, they came up with the idea, this was to be nothing more but a platform, an opportunity for others to come together to China and realize this vision. And that's very important to understand. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is very much um, a common vision that China is asking countries to join in. And not only countries, it's asking the private sector to join in and multilateral development institutions like ours to join in and help build. Why, why is that? Because fundamentally, um, while China is certainly uh, probably the world most uh, uh, important growing economy and it's increasing its economic weight in the world, it does realize that it cannot operate on its own. It needs others to be successful. And that's a very clear uh, sort of element of the Belt and Road Initiative. It can be successful only if value is created for all of the uh, actors involved, if uh, um, the opportunities it creates are truly inclusive and they go to uh, all the countries that sit along the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, it can only bring value and be sustainable politically and economically only if people see the advantages and the benefits of build being along the Belt and Road Initiative. And that's something that has been very, very clear in the sort of description of what the vision looks like. It's a vision of really inclusive uh, growth. And that must have contributed to the astounding speed with which it's all been happening. No, absolutely. It's, uh, it's uh, something that was announced only two or three years ago, but we see already that China is reorganizing its activities to support this vision, and it's asking others to do the same. Um, just to give you an example, we can count maybe by now more than five, six hundred billion dollars of investment that China has put into projects along the Belt and Road Initiative. Many of the multilateral development banks like ours have been reorganizing themselves to support uh, such activities. Many of the countries along the Belt and Road Initiative are considering their own investments and the, and the scope of the connectivity agenda. Uh, that uh, is at the heart of the vision launched by Xi Jinping. And this has happened only in three years. Can you imagine what we're going to see over the next decade? It does feel incredible. What are, what are some of the most high-profile achievements so far? Well, it's probably the most visible one in the investment along the China-Pakistan economic corridor. This is really the first time we see a comprehensive set of investments into connectivity. Um, and this includes, yes, infrastructure, but it also includes other components of connectivity from connectivity over um, IT, so for instance, internet connectivity, to connectivity of people and cultures. There's lots of activities around understanding cultures better, uh, to connectivity of policy, creating policies which are more aligned across countries so that goods and services can cross borders more easily. So it's quite an impressive uh, 
an impressive uh, uh, project. So we're seeing investment into motorways, power plants, wind farms, factories, railways. It's really something that is uh, an economic revolution for particularly Pakistan, where the projections is that more than a million jobs will be created on the back of, uh, back of this. This is the first and most prominent example. We see other investments, uh, uh, other investments popping up to, in uh, several uh, countries along the Belt and Road Initiative. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help change people's lives. I'm Venora Bennett, and today we're discussing the Belt and Road Initiative with our guest, Mattia Romani. Um, infrastructure is obviously a huge focus of the Belt and Road Initiative, Mattia. Is it just about infrastructure and development, or is there more to it? I'm really glad uh, you asked that question, because that's something that we really um, have to understand, because it's really part of the innovative character of this vision, this, uh, this uh, if you want, platform that China has proposed to, to the world. Yes, infrastructure is at the heart of it, because if you think about connectivity, still physical connectivity is a major obstacle. Think about our countries of operations, for instance, in Central Asia, where it's extremely difficult to move uh, goods and services across uh, uh, countries in Central Asia due to the lack of infrastructure. So physical infrastructure constitutes, of course, uh, the heart of the issue. But there is so much more to it. There is uh, uh, policy coordination, for example. We see in several of our countries of operations that um, moving uh, goods across borders is made more complicated by the fact that standards are different. So, uh, you know, the, 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 from standards uh, uh, of services or goods for exports to the regulatory standards that uh, you have to meet in order to be able to move goods and services across borders. So this element of aligning policies, ensuring that uh, countries set similar rules and conditions on uh, goods and services that cross their borders will be incredibly uh, important. Trade is another element which is really very important. What are the rules for trade? What can we move across borders uh, without having to pay uh, very high uh, duties on the border? This is an element that is intrinsic to the concept of connectivity and that is of uh, great importance. And this is some real important political economy consequences. This does not only mean moving Chinese goods more easily to Europe, but also moving uh, European goods more easily uh, in the direction of China, and of course, ensuring that countries in between do not only see high-speed trains flashing through their countries moving goods between Germany and Shanghai, but uh, that there are opportunities for goods which are lo pro produced locally to be traded both in Europe and China thanks to this increased connectivity. Financial integration is another element that goes hand-in-hand -hand with the physical infrastructure, the ability to understand risk, map risks, um, and therefore create financial instruments that can support uh, investments across countries is incredibly important. And I don't want to underestimate another element that is really part of this Chinese vision, which is creating bonds among people. There's a really important element of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is about deepening the understanding of different cultures to allow for easier exchanges uh, of goods and services across the border. So it's much more, if you want, um, sophisticated than just physical infrastructure. Absolutely. Um, I see now why some people say that China is at the forefront of a new era of globalization, especially um, now that certain so-called advanced economies seem to be adopting more protectionist positions. Um, is this globalization mark two in action? 
Well, I would say that we certainly see this as a very important test uh, for uh, globalization and what it means. And the test there is really on its sustainability. And by this, I mean more than anything else, political sustainability. Will people across countries in the Belt and Road Initiative support a move in this direction? And the answer will be positive if and only if they will see benefits quickly to these new uh, initiatives and this new uh, sort of push from China. And they're going to see this benefit only if we think through very carefully how we put into reality this vision in a way that it's close to people's needs and people's aspirations. Let's remember the greatest majority of the countries that the Belt and Road Initiative is sort of considering going through either land routes or maritime routes are poor countries. They are developing and emerging countries where many people have been left behind and where poverty is still a substantial issue. Some of them are own countries of operation. So it's incredibly important that as we put this vision into practice, we keep the people needs uh, sort of at the very uh, heart of it. And then, yes, there would be globalization 2.0. That would have the political sustainability to actually continue and, and deepen. The good news is that this is very much uh, at least on paper, uh, on the agenda what China wants to achieve. If you listen to Xi Jinping's speech uh, last May when he gathered world's leaders in Beijing to present this vision, um, his speech very much focuses on uh, uh, inclusiveness, of doing this together. So yes, identify projects for cooperation. They have mutual benefits, um, but also... Uh, that pursue common interests among countries. And finally, that allow us to enjoy together. And I think by this, it means really that people can enjoy together the benefits uh, of it. So this is very much at the heart of the vision on paper. The Chinese metaphor of symphony, um, not a solo. It sounds like a great concept, but there's still some scepticism about it. What's that about? And uh, what are the challenges it still faces and what needs to be done to overcome them? Yes, that's a natural question, because uh, on paper and in the speeches, we hear a certain message about how, what's uh, changing the ground. There are, I'd say, three reasons that drive some scepticism. The first one is that people are concerned about just the mere weight of China in the global economy, and therefore how, um, how possible it will be to protect and, um, if you want, um, sort of uh, um, ring fence the interest of much smaller economies uh, in the context of the strong Chinese um, expansion. In other words, will this will this become by default just a Chinese intervention? And everything we'll see will be just Chinese investments with very little benefits from anybody else. So that's the first concern. The second concern is um, a concern about the Chinese development model. Does this mean that China will export its way of doing business and of creating growth to the rest of the world? And this concerns some countries that uh, sort of see um, their uh, sort of democratic institutions as being weak and therefore they're concerned that an alternative model for development may weaken them further. Um, and third, I would say, there's a concern about the standards, uh, uh, particularly environmental 
environmental and social standards of the investments? Will China continue to behave in ways that we saw in the past, in which uh, Chinese investments would come with Chinese labor, Chinese standards, and not international standards, particularly when it comes to environmental, social impact, but also procurement? I think these three concerns um, are fair concerns, and we need to be very careful that uh, um, we support China in translating their vision into actions that are in line with the principles they outlined. The good news is that China very much wants all the help from its friends to do that. And that's a little bit why organization like ours, the uh, EBRD, is working very closely with the Chinese government because our call and our duty is to ensure that these investments benefit our countries of operations. And this comes only if these three concerns are really taken care of. On one side, ensuring that the economies of our countries of operations, the businesses in our countries of operations, and ultimately people in our countries of operations benefit from this investment. Two, if the development model of uh, uh, these countries and the uh, sort of uh, sovereign right to determine uh, how their institutions will work is preserved uh, and uh, we uh, uh, and we will work with the countries on this and third is that the way in which these investments impact the environment and the social reality of these countries uh, respects the highest possible standards in line with all the uh, operations that EBRD is involved in so I believe that there's an important role that multilateral development banks like ours uh, can play to support China in implementing the vision and the principles they have laid out for the Belt and Road Initiative. And that brings me very neatly on to my next question, which is about what, what the impact has been so far and what it's likely to be in future of the Belt and Road Initiative on um, the EBRD's region. So let me say, given I, I told you in, in, in the previous uh, sort of answer a little bit what I think we can do practically, let me tell you the, the good news and the good story. I think this can be transformational for the EBRD. This is the first time since the EBRD was created in which we have a common vision of growth, development, investment, jobs, innovation, cutting across pretty much all of our countries of operations. We are the international financial institutions with the largest footprint in terms of countries along the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, this vision is a vision of connectivity, growth and jobs across countries that sometimes, uh, to be honest, are forgotten by the world, countries that uh, are not part of the global economy. They're mostly cut out of the big global supply chains. Well, now we have a vision and a commitment to take these countries back to the center of the world, uh, to come back to what I was saying earlier, moving that center of the world back closer to the heart of Asia, I think would be a tremendous opportunity for our country. So I think this uh, initiative has the potential to impact the EBRD, but most importantly, our countries of operations very deeply. Thank you very much, Mathieu. I'm, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But if you're interested in learning more about this subject, you can find out more on ebrd.com. Meanwhile, share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and ebrd.com forward slash podcast to download previous episodes. And we'd love to hear your suggestions as to what we should be discussing. We're now on the second season of Pocket Economics, and the podcast is going from strength to strength, with live events now a new way for you to get involved. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.